I was horrified by what I was seeing as people's sort of lack of learning collectively to what just happened or is happening. It's still happening. This hasn't changed yet. Isn't it interesting that we could be the people that the new artists scandalize? The idea of being forced to create something and tell a story constantly when it has no meaning, it has no soul, it has no authenticity or credibility just seems so vacant. I have a choice every morning. I can take care of myself and be of use, or I can lie in bed and contribute to the garbage. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Mental Health Awareness Week, and last week on BOF Live, our editor-at-large, Tim Blank, spoke to the celebrated American designer, Mark Jacobs, who touched on a variety of topics from, you know, working through the coronavirus crisis and maintaining his creativity, but also on how the crisis is impacting his own mental health at this time of anxiety and stress for people around the world. Here's... Mark Jacobs, Inside Fashion. Hi, Tim. Hi, Mark. Such a pleasure to see you today. It's a, always a pleasure to see you, Tim. And this will have to be our conversation for the next few seasons, I guess, because we won't be seeing each other in... Well, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Where are you today? I am in New York City in my hotel room in Soho, um, talking to you. You've been in a hotel room for the whole lockdown. Yes, yes, yes. How's that been? It's been, I, let's, let's put it this way. I am grateful to be in a place where I'm comfortable. I'm gonna, st I'm gonna start on the, I'm gonna start this chat on a positive note. So what I have to keep going back to in my mind is that I am grateful. I have my two dogs with me, I have a, clean made bed that I made this morning. I have what I need. I've got a closet full of clothes that I can play with. I've got a couple of makeup bags that I can play with. I have my iPhone and my iPad, which I can connect to other people with. And I have a terrace where I can sit outside and get some air. So I am very grateful that I'm comfortable today and I feel like I'm taken care of. And Obviously, you can't physically connect with people. I'm finding I'm actually connecting with people more than I usually do because I think about connecting with them now. But I have Well, it's a strange thing, isn't it, connection? Because I never really... I think of this as a type of connection, and I think we can use these devices of ours to connect with people in some superficial way or in some way that's different. But I'm a Luddite. And I believe in live contact. I believe in note writing and letter writing. I believe in seeing people across a dinner table or having a coffee with them. I see, I don't see, I didn't grow up with life on a screen and I didn't grow up with a cell phone in my hand at, or, or an iPad or an iPhone or whatever. And I like live performance and I like live theater and I like life. I like going into shops. I like seeing people on streets. So while this is some form of connection, it's certainly, I don't have any kind of real connection to this form of connection. So, but how, how hard has this been for you then? Well, um, it's, it kind of, it kind of goes in waves and spurts. I mean, there, I'm, I'm very, I'm sort of manic depressive in a way. I mean, I am, you know, my mental health goes sort of from mania to depression. 
So there are days where I just feel extremely depressed and feel like it's the end of the world. And then there are days where I'm manic and I just think what a great opportunity for us all to learn collectively from this and move forward. And then there's all the grays in between. But I mean, I tend to go from like the basement to the attic in five seconds, you know, like in terms of emotions. And so it's been very hard because I also am not really in control of how I'm going to feel. You know, the feelings come and it's just a question of how I kind of accept them and, and sort of, you know, honor them, et cetera. So, so I've had moments of feeling very productive and creative and moments of feeling just like, what's it all for? Mm. Or is that all there is, as I keep saying? Mm. The song that you told Camilla Lauder you would have played. Yes, exactly. Isn't it funny how life comes along to trip up those kind of those little notions and give them a sort of real time weight? Well, you see, it's this it's this computer right here that fascinates me the most. And that's what I think is always this like kind of amazing thing. I have this kind of faulty computer, which is my brain. And it's not faulty in the sense that it doesn't work, but I'm it just kind of works as it does. Right. And so, I mean, for absolutely no apparent reason, I could do everything I did yesterday and go to sleep on time and wake up on time and have my vitamins, drink my juices. And for some reason, and the sun could be shining and I can have the most miserable attitude about life and see things through the darkest lens. And then I could, you know, I could stay up all night and, and, and not drink my juices, not drink my vitamins. And like the sun isn't shining and I'm just like full of hope and you know, like, so who knows, you know? And then, yes, there are like these songs that come to my head and these things I've seen and these performances I know, and I don't know, like books I've read. And, you know, I don't, I'm not in charge of where the, where the, where my brain sort of fires on a particular day, but like, it just does it. And it's like kind of fascinating as it kind of goes through all of its little, uh. Do you find yourself dreaming a lot more? I have some very weird dreams, but I've always had weird dreams and I've always been a bit of an insomniac. Because apparently that's a, that's a huge side effect of this uh, pandemic is people are having incredible, they're dreaming in color and dreaming a lot about real, well, real people, like either family members or celebrities or whatever, but they, they remember their dreams being full of, you know, almost like movies. And that's a, that's the side effect of this, that people are penned, penned up in the daytime and then they just, the, the minds explode when they're asleep at night. I don't think that I'm dreaming more than I was before. And I think my dreams are kind of still of the crazy surreal content that they always were, which combines a little bit of like the tape recorder, you know, things I've just recently heard, but then, then concocted into something that might have some other greater meaning. But, uh, no, I find my dreaming kind of the same, I guess. You said you're making a movie while you're-, you're Yeah, Sophia, Sophia recommended. I mean, she, she had this idea, unfortunately it was like four weeks in. She was like, oh, you should have taped yourself every day, like just videotaped yourself every day. Like, so you had this like, you know, daily journal, like on tape of like everything you did, just like this endless documentary journal. And I was like, well, if I'd started it four weeks ago, it would have been great. But because we're already four weeks in, it feels like we'll have to do something else. So, so Nick, um, my friend, my best friend, and, and, and someone I work with very closely, you know, at Mark Jacobs, um, he, 
he and I came up and we decided we'd do more of a fairy tale, like of this, this kind of life in quarantine, more of an Eloise or a, you know, like, or a Home Alone or something like that, where I played all the characters who would normally be here at the hotel, but are not. Like what kind of characters you play? Well, everything from the porter to the manager, to the chef in the restaurant, to the housekeeping, to the engineer, to the different people who are residing in the hotel, to the different things I do in my room on different occasion, to me documenting myself, like just, just, just like that. And never any element of the overlook creeping in, the shine. No, just, just, just anything I can do within the confines of this hotel. And as said, your, your Instagram has been incredibly vivid the whole time that you've been in lockdown. It, it feels almost like you are testing out characters. And, and well, I'm not really, I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, I've always been this way. This is like, this is nine-year-old Mark who, you know, always was in his bedroom escaping chaos of what life looked like, you know, like a very disturbed and dysfunctional childhood. And I went to my room and I sat with my clothes and I painted my jeans or I embroidered my jean jacket and I put on my outfits and I combed my hair one way or the other. And, you know, maybe I found a curler for my mother that I curled my hair with, whatever it was. But that nine-year-old kid, that me, was like in his own world, in his bedroom, was like safe and had to use his imagination to create a world that was a happier place. And that's kind of what I'm doing. I mean, I have two months worth of clothes that I packed to move in here. And I have a couple of bags of, of makeup that I randomly, for some reason, felt were important to take with me. And, um, and then, you know, just, and the dogs and uh, some hair clips, some jewelry. And I'm just playing around and, uh, and keeping myself entertained. And, and doing what I do, which I think is taking care of my mental health. I mean, I have to get up every day and shower and I have to groom and I have to um, get dressed. And I, I, I just feel like not only do I have to do it for my sanity, but like I enjoy doing it. So it gives me this pleasure and it allows me to kind of be of service in some way because if I'm not well and taking care of myself creatively and in every other sort of way, then I'm of no use to anybody else. I mean, I, I just can't lie in an unmade bed all day long. It's the most depressing thing. I've, I mean, I used to see my mother who, who suffered from manic depression and she wouldn't get out of her bed sometimes for weeks and her bed was never made. And the sight of an unmade bed to me is just about the most horrifying thing I can remember. Because I remember when we talked uh, before, the day before your wedding, and you, you said that you could feel that slowing down important to you and you, you'd answer well well, well they're important to me yeah you, yeah well well i think i think i i feel oddly before all of this started you know i feel that that last show was very telling of what i really was thinking but that does that doesn't surprise me because all the shows are somewhat autobiographical but um you know, told the story of a New York that I remembered and that I loved and that I still love, but is gone. And, and the kind of, the, the movement and everything and the sort of losing the fashion within this sort of thing. You know, I mean, looking back on it, I think I've enriched the story even more, but, but it had shades of all my heroes and, and it had 
my fashion life as a New Yorker, you know, kind of told. And I, I kind of felt, and Katie reminded me this, you know, after every show, I say, like, if this was the last show I'd ever do, it was, you know, I'd, I'd be fine with it. But she said, you were so emphatic about the last show. And I did feel like, like things have got to change. We've got to slow down. We can do this twice a year. We have, you know, I would like to say something creatively, but I can do it twice a year. I mean, the idea of being forced to create something and tell a story constantly when it has no meaning, it has no soul, it has no, like, authenticity or credibility just seems so vacant and the amount of product that produces that goes nowhere but fills landfills and just and this greed and this all of the stuff that goes along with it and besides how we're destroying the world we live in it's just like everything just felt to me like what the fuck are we doing so so you know charlie and i decided to buy this house and build a house on the water well rebuild or restore a house on the water and it became very symbolic because for the first time in my life, you know, I wanted to leave the city and I wanted to get out and I wanted to slow down. And I thought, I want to live my life and I want fashion to be a part of it, but I don't, I can't have this be my whole life. You know, that, that show felt so climactic to me. The show with Carol Armitage and the dance models. And the, it, it was such an orgy of creativity. It almost felt, you know, if you think of, if you think of the last works of people that, 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 you know, like Pasolini's last movie or something, where you thought there's nowhere else you could go after that. And I wonder if, I wondered if you felt like it was, it seems almost prophetic now that that would be the same. I do, I do in a way, I mean, I've said this to my psychiatrist, my lovely Dr. Richardson, my shrink, and I've said it to Katie and I said it to everyone around me. You know, I would be very happy if, if that were my last show. I mean, because I feel like I've said what I had to say and I said it beautifully and I'm, I'm like, bye. But, but it isn't really true because it, whether it's my last show or not, that's fine. But the urge to make things and create hasn't gone away. So I still want to be active and I still want to make something and I still have stories to tell maybe I need to tell them in a different way and maybe I will tell them in a different way and maybe fashion will continue to be a great part of how I tell my story. But I don't, I'll miss a live show and I'll miss an audience because I love theater. I mean, it's my first love. Nothing can replace the emotion and the feelings one gets from being in a room and seeing something performed. I've seen that show videotaped and I've seen it edited and I've watched that videotape and it reminds me of what it was like to be there. But I don't feel like what it was like to be there. It was uh, overwhelming. It was like a tsunami. Well, but, but you can't get that feeling through a recording. And I have never seen a live performance recorded that has blown yeah. my mind. It is true. I, I do think that this is going to, going to be one of the massive challenges for the fashion industry replacing the physicality of the show with some kind of technological. Well, well, but it's no different. It's no different than talking about shops. To me, the, uh, when people started saying, why are you shopping in stores when you can get it all online? I don't understand how people can be satisfied by ordering a coat through a picture and receiving it in a box and putting it on and saying, oh, I like this, I'll keep it. I love to go to a shop. I like to see everything. I like to touch it. I like to try it on. 
I like to have a coffee. I like to have a bottle of water. I like to get dressed up to go to the shop. It's a ritual and an experience. And there's, there's emotion and, and cinema involved with shopping. But ordering online in a pair of grubby sweats is not my idea of living life. You know, um, when we talked, um, you, you quoted Lara Wachowski, uh, your friend who- Lana. Lana, Lana, who directed the movies, the Matrix movies. And she'd said to you, this is the landscape of the world and it is changing. And I feel that, you know, there are people like us who, who still are incredibly attached to, physical, to the physicality of things. Yes. I, I feel, you know, the generation now that, can buy a coat online and doesn't particularly value the, the, the physical experience of walking to a shop and feeling it on a No. I think there's a generation after that that does. I do think that- Let's hope that generation is alive to, to, to retell this story. Because honestly, Tim, I just, I do think like, I, I don't, you know, I, I say this like there's such, it's such a hard thing to talk about because I know that I belong to a different generation. I'm a leftover generation, as are you. And um, I got that from Kristen McNenemy, um, and she, Kristen McNenemy, and she says the leftover generation, and I think it's very appropriate. Um, I do value physicality, and I do value the experiences that I grew up with, and I, I cherish them, and I'm grieving them right now. And I don't see that grief going away anytime soon. I have to go through this process, and I think it's going to be a long process. And will other people want, you know, once again, will some, will some species once again feel the value of this? Perhaps. Maybe not. Maybe we will all just become data. Well, you know, if you think about all the years you've, your entire life spent in New York, you've seen the city kick to the curb a few times. You know, I, I, moved, I lived in New York in 1978, and I just remember it was, the city was bankrupt, and it was incredible. It was, it was a very dark, perverse city. And then later on, there was all the other, you know, there was 9-11, there, there was... Um, AIDS. Yeah, AIDS before that, yes. There was um, Hurricane... Sandy. Sandy. Um, you know, the, the city has taken some enormous licks over the years. And it just. Yeah, well, but that we're talking about New York City, but this is global, mm. right? And fashion shows don't happen in New York. I mean, already last season, it was a very. I, I felt that, again, going back to the show, it was a little bit of a farewell because already there were no shows in New York. I mean, it was difficult to get models. A lot of people didn't come to the shows. You know, Ralph didn't show this season and Tommy showed in London. And, you know, there were fewer shows than ever there were. So I have been saying, as has my team, that we don't know if there'll be much of a fashion industry in New York. Will there be factories that we work with? Will they be able to stay in business? We've been saying this for years. So will the, will the people who have the uh, skill still be around to make the clothes the way we demand they be made? And will people still be traveling to New York because it's become less important of a place to see fashion? And I, I, I know that New York will take some other shape and the landscape will change. I don't know that I'll like it and I don't know that I'll be around to ultimately see it, but, but that's life, you know, like everything changes for better or for worse. That's the way it is. But we're talking about the world and New York City is not the world, although I grew up thinking it was all my life. But I think this is happening all over the world, but also it's, it's really enforcing a sense of 
community. It's made the world shrink. Is it? I think so. I think... I don't know if there's... From all the things I keep seeing, the, I mean, and again, maybe I'm watching the wrong news or maybe I'm just focusing on this, but, you know, when, when certain places opened up, the behavior, the system all looked like it was like, oh, we start back today and we start back the way we left off. So it was very disappointing to see that the collective, the collective mentality was how quickly can I return to what I was doing just before this happened? You know, no masks, jogging on the street, in stores, buying up clothes and stuff, raising prices. Like, I mean, it was disgusting. I was horrified by what I was seeing as like people's sort of lack of learning collectively to what just happened or is happening. It's still happening. This hasn't changed yet. We're in it. It's been three months. And I think it's, the enormity of it is still beyond processing. I think... Of course it is. I think when it, when it becomes a fact of life. Um, that obviously, the, I don't think we've started to see the changes. We haven't started to really appreciate the economic damage yet. You know, when I, I would say give it a year or so, the world will be a radically different place. Well, I've already, I mean, you know, I mean, I, again, speaking from my own experience, we had to lay off a bunch of people last week. I mean, a lot of really great, talented people that I've always worked with or I've worked with for many, many years. And we had to ask the remaining people to reduce their salaries to half of what they were making. And some of them can't afford to live in New York under those circumstances, which, is, which makes sense. So I'm not really sure how or what we'll be able to do with what we've got left. I don't know how I don't know how we'll approach it. I don't know who will be left to approach it. Um, you know, and, um, and I, I'm not sure what we'll want to say once we come out of this anyway. So, so I, I'm left with a lot of questions, but on the other hand, we do have a system. I mean, we are part of a larger system, which is a, a big, you know, corporate structure that basically funds us and finances us that we're responsible to. And their thing is how do we recuperate the business we've lost so that we can continue to survive and do what we do. And each, you know, within each, each uh, brand of the group, we have to hold our own. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to survive economically. And I, I, th I feel I'm, I'm very torn morally and ethically and then I think, well, you know, I can only, I, I have to continue to create something in order to have something to sell. And if I don't, then how can I continue to fun? Like, I, I mean, it's just so difficult to answer all these questions. And I'm not talking about now the whole world and how they're going to do, but I, I think about my part in this world. And I think if this is my part and each person looks at their part collectively, we're all in the same shit. But if the system isn't going to change, then, then, then if the change isn't total, if it isn't across the board, then I don't know how much of a difference but, but it really are, makes. Are you, when you think about what you do, are you, are you going back to what you did at the very beginning and why you did what you did at the very beginning? What drew you into... Uh, well, well... No, because I'm thinking of creativity. I'm not thinking of fashion specifically. I'm talking to you about fashion because I'm a fashion designer. And fashion is how I've expressed myself creatively for many years. But I think about the conversation of essential. And I, can, I think about this quarantine. And I think, 
where would we be in quarantine if we didn't have fashion or if we didn't have movies or if we didn't have music and we didn't have books we'd be sitting naked in our thoughts with some bread and some water because and some oxygen because that's what we need to survive we need bread water air that's it right so I would not be sitting here in a sweater and pearls and a hair clip talking to you in your finery. I would be nude without any of this. I, I mean, so, so I need creativity. We, we, we don't need it. It's not essential to live, but we wouldn't want to live without it. I don't think. I wouldn't want to live without it. I'll just speak for myself. So I know that I need to speak to you about work that's been created, about the dreams of future work to come, about the new movies there are to see, about the new songs there are to hear, about the new dance craze, about the new trends, about the new artwork that's gonna be made, about like all of that stuff. Without that, I just really have no you know, desire I, I, to go on. A friend on. of ours sent us a quote the other day, I don't know why, but it seemed very appropriate. I quoted Nietzsche, and he <laughs> said, we have art so that she will, we have art so that we shall not die of reality. Well, that's perfect. That is absolutely true. So I believe we'll dance again and I believe we'll be creative again. Now, how that looks and how that feels, I don't know. And I don't think anybody does. What kind of art have you been looking at during this period? Oh, I've been looking, I, I was, uh, um, it's funny because it's funny what happens is that I post things on Instagram and then what happens is art dealers or people I know in art say like, oh, we saw you posted this, you might be interested in the work of Gina Beavers. So I looked her up and then I saw her work. And of course I understood immediately why they thought I might be interested. So I find Instagram is a funny kind of ping pong game. Like I find that I, I can use it as a kind of tool to play this kind of match, this game where you know you post something, somebody responds to it, they sort of say something back and then you get turned on to something else and that inspires you and then you turn not, you know then you go back with something new and and i that's how i'm using instagram really as a form of like a a kind of volley and um so i've i've discovered gina's work and i think that's great and a couple of others um whose names i'm not oh, oh uh um well i i discovered david kramer because of celine but um a few a few artists that i haven't i i didn't know of lisa bryce no, I don't know who that is. I'll look her up as soon as we get off. Uh, did you did you go online to look at Freeze New York? I didn't. Because I thought that was that was the beginning of the whole notion of transferring a physical experience into the digital realm. You know, that you could go you could cruise the dark fair online. And you know, now we're gonna be seeing digital fashion shows in June and probably in September. And I just wonder how successful. It's, I, I find well, quite, well, quite nice cruising through freeze online. But um. I'll tell you one thing with art. I find, again, like with theater, if I know the work, if I've experienced the work in real life, I respond to it online. But if I see it online, I don't have an emotional, a primitive connection to it. I do not look at a Rothko and cry online. But I, you stand me in front of six Rothkos and I'm overwhelmed or Barnett Newman or something like that. But when I look at Barnett Newman online, I see stripes, but that's not what I see when I saw it at the tape. You know, so like, it's a very different physical experience to look at a canvas 
than to see it reduced to a thumbnail online. Isn't that funny? Because that's, that's sort of the needs of commerce. You know, Freeze needs to sell art. So they put it on. Well, that's, we're all in that boat, though. Anybody, anybody who's selling a pro Look, if we were all making art for art's sake, we wouldn't need to post it. We'd just get the pleasure and the full experience would be making the art for ourselves. But it's not. It's like, what was that? Was it The Moon and Sixpence? That was the story of Gauguin, roughly, where he was like, he'd make art for art's sake and then burn the canvases because the only thing he needed to do was make the art. He didn't need to show it. He didn't need to sell it. He didn't care about people's reaction to it. He didn't care of it. He didn't care about it as a commodity. But we're not talking about people who are making art for art's sake. They might, their initial reaction to making art is they have a creative need to fulfill. But then that goes to another level, which is like putting it out there to have it looked at and judged, appreciated or not, and sold. What, what do you think of this idea that, that, you know, great art comes from catastrophe, that after World War II, World War I, there was Dada and Surrealism. After World War II, there was Abstract Expressionism and, you know, the reaction to that. And I know that your favorite, you, you told me your favorite painting was the Marcel Duchamp Mona Lisa with a mustache. Yes. And... El Achaux Yes. Um, I can't say it in French, so it sounds like the pun it's supposed to be. But, um, you know, these artists were responding to disaster and they made incredible world-changing works of, of art. Yes. Something, could you imagine something similar happening after this? I'd like to imagine something happening after this. I wonder, with all of our current laziness based on the screen, like what that will look like. So I do believe something will happen. I don't know if I'll be able to connect to it because I, it might be created with a medium that I have no connection to. So again, maybe, you know, this, this iPad and these like pencils that you get from Apple and whatever to draw, like I, something will emerge from this. I'm not sure I'll be able to connect with the medium in which it's created out of. I don't know, I don't know. It's an interesting, you know, Duchamp scandalized people. And, and I know. Artists scandalize. Isn't it interesting that we could be the people that the new artists scandalize? Well, I hope so. We could be that generation. I wish someone would do something that would cause such a reaction in me. Well, what have you seen that causes a reaction? What have you seen or heard? Well, I've certainly not been scandalized by anything. I mean, I find things offensive, but I don't find them. I find them offensive to my sense of morals and taste, but that's, but then I come back and I say, I'm judging and I don't want to be a judge. It's not my job. So some, you know, and, and it's very hard to also to not be hypocritical and judge at the same, like you can't like, so, so I'm trying to not judge other people and other people's behavior and what works for them and all that. So, um, but it's quite hard because I, like I said, I'm not, I, I don't find anything scandalous. I just find some things repulsive. Which is good too. Not so good. Uh. Well, it's different. I think what it creates in me is this kind of desire to just disappear. Like, I'm like, if this is what it looks like, I don't want to be a part of it. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's a stimulating sort of repulsion. But what, what, what has given you the most sort of uh, sucker while you've been in? The most what? Sucker, you know, the most, uh, 
the most reassuring, um, you know, the balm, the balm for your soul? What have you, what music have you been listening to? What, what TV shows have you been watching? Okay, so I, I haven't really been listening to music. Oh. I haven't really been listening to music. Actually, it's, first of all, most of my day is spent on FaceTime or texting or Zooming lately. So, so it's really the sound of my voice and the dogs drinking water or barking or having nightmares or whatever. And um, so I haven't really been listening to things during the day. I find, I find I like the quiet of the room. I really like the quiet. And I put the TV on at night and sometimes I watch things that are very interesting and sometimes I watch things that are mindless. I mean, if I need mindless TV, I go to Love Island UK. And if I want something challenging or something interesting and informative or clever, or then I ask people for recommendations. And for instance, Lana recommended, you know, a documentary called Crip Camp, which I thought was amazing. And she re recommended a film called Touch Me Not, which was incredible to watch. And I've watched, you know, all the usual that everybody else has watched, the Tiger Kings and the Hollywoods and all that stuff. And, um, but I don't usually put the TV on till dark. And I told you about Devs already. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna check that out. On Hulu in America, yeah. Well, the Devs, yeah. Um, and you find out what Devs means in the very last second, which is very interesting. Um, I'm curious about, uh, you, you told Camilla that you love dancing. There have been days where I've danced naked in my bathroom. And there, you know, there was one conversation I had early on, actually I was on a FaceTime with Lana. And it was so, ins she inspired me so much. And she, you know, I say I love dancing, but I do, I've found that when I've danced, I really enjoy that energy, but I'm not like Lana. I don't, Lana lives to go out dancing for days at a time. I mean, she loves Berghain and she's living in Berlin with her wife. And, you know, she lives to dance for days and days, but I found her conversation that day or our conversation so uplifting. I just took off my clothes and I went into the bathroom and I was dancing around. I was listening to Lerita Mitsuko, you know, that 80s hit. Wow. And, and I was just, I just kept playing it over and over again and I was dancing around and, and it felt so good. The release was incredible, but, but um, I don't regularly dance. I do listen to some Philip Glass, uh, but that doesn't actually get me dancing. But I love, I'd love the release. I mean, I'm looking for a release right now, you know? What do you think, how do you think you'll look back on this moment? Oh, God only knows. I just want to get through it. Yeah, I think um, I haven't been able to read a book, which I find kind of peculiar. Me too. I'm the same. I can't focus on it. I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. I think it's people, the, the effects of this. I mean, I've, I have been reading some newsletters about mental health. And, you know, what people don't understand is how phenomenally important mental health is. And the effect of this quarantine on us psychologically and emotionally and physically and everything else. And even though we think that we know what it feels like, I think that there's a lot of, like, I've tried to be on a schedule. I've tried to do this. I've tried to be conscious and aware and, you know, insight, like use my insights to like kind of correct my behavior, but it, I can't always do it. I just sometimes just can't, seem to find the motivation or the focus, even though I know it's what I'd like to be doing or what I think would be a good thing for me to do. I just think it's extraordinary that we're living in a moment that nobody could ever have predicted. Um, we're living in a sort of, this is, you know, the, everybody has their indulgent end of day scenarios. And this is, this is one that just, we never imagined. I think it's been an interesting, 
um, when you talk about people just sliding back into their sort of pattern behavior, we're confronted by the implacability of something like nature here. And it's just so huge. And you think about, I, I, just, go, I just go back all the time to this, the Industrial Revolution isn't even 300 years old. And nature is how many billions of years old? And so we have our little Anthropocene moment. And then suddenly this huge corrective. There is a line I heard many years ago, and I think it's very appropriate. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Well, that's John Lennon too, isn't it? He said something like that, yeah. Well, I think someone said it before John, but it's okay. <laughs> but, but, but what is the quote you gave me that I loved about creativity just now? Now we have art so that we shall not die of reality. That's perfect. You have to send that to me in a text or something. I will, absolutely. I, you, one of the things I thought that's all, one of the things that has always been so thrilling for me about you as a designer is your curiosity and the way that you're able to turn, uh, turn a fascination with a single photograph into an entire world. Like the, the sort of incredible cinema of, of, of a fashion show that, that there's very few people have been able to capitalize on as successfully. Um, what, what, what do you find you're most curious about at the moment? I'm curious to see what life will be like. Like you said, I think, I think I'm frightened by it, but, but you know, fear and excitement are kind of the same thing in a way. Um, so I'm afraid of what it might be like, but I'm also excited about what, what adapting to life might bring you know like that that's it's so it, it is it's a perspective thing isn't it like you know on the darkest days i i fear it and then on the brightest days or when i have those lenses on that are clear i'm like i'm looking forward to seeing how i can adapt to what is you know and um so so to adapting and acceptance and and sort of creating again but uh I, I, don't, I don't have anything specific in mind other than, than like, well, it could be an exciting moment to, to, to make things again, you know? Yeah, because it's, it's like I was saying about um, creativity coming out of catastrophe, that um, human beings have some fundamental needs and some of those fundamental needs we have uh, lost touch with. One of those is is sort of the beauty of the world around us. You know that, that you know how many people are talking about bird song. Oh, the, I've never heard the birds like this before. The birds were always singing like that before. We just never heard them, and now we do. And I, I, I just I would hope that those experiences stay with people. You know, when I, I'm I'm just I, again I'm I'm afraid <laughs> I'm afraid that that's very beautiful. Uh, vision and 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 it's a lovely thought but i'm afraid that that we're too far along the road of destroy, destroying ourselves and making ourselves extinct for that to be possible i i really am i mean i think that business is like those birds get drowned out by business all the time and will be again i guess i'm i'm afraid i'm afraid of that but but then but then again if something is learned if something shifts if something changes then then maybe, I, I don't know, it's, it's so, it's too early in this process to know. I say this is the end of the beginning. I mean, we're, we're 
we're not even we're not even halfway down this road. We have a lot. Well, I don't think we're even close to halfway. I think this is just like and and the fact that people could even think like oh thank God two months. This is hundreds of years in the making. Two months is not going to turn the lights back on, guys. It's like, it's so illogical, the thought process of like, right, so we've had to be locked up for two months. Let's just turn the lights back on and go back to the way we were. It's like, it's moronic. I don't know. Ironic, and now it's moronic. I don't know. We have leaders that are running businesses, not countries. And that we have, we, we have leaders who are cynics and nihilists and uh, liars as well, which is no help at all. But so there is an answer, revolution. I'm glad that there's somebody way ahead of me on this one because I've been saying that for a little while actually. Well, that's what that was, what we talked about, Tim, you and I did talk about this over the summer. In the end of years and years, the mother says that fantastic speech she makes at the dinner table, she says, you're all to blame. What are you gonna do about it? And they cause this revolution, they fight back. And it's like, I think you'd need an upheaval or a revolution of such enormity to change anything. There would need to be a full-on revolution in order for this to change. Now, I don't know that I've got the energy to lead that revolution, nor the desire, but I certainly would sign up for it. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact is that revolutions come a lot of the time, out of, they spring from necessity, and the needs of billions are going to be pretty extreme over the next little while. Absolutely. See, I honestly don't see how there won't be some, I mean, obviously, well, I think there will be civil unrest at some point. I don't see how there won't be. And, Absolutely. Um, and then we have a pre-revolutionary condition existing. Listen to us. But, you know, again, we're, I, 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 I am listening to us and I'm speaking to you and I'm speaking to you from my very comfortable hotel room, dressed I'm nicely speaking. after a shower, and, and again, I keep thinking about the conversations about privilege. And when I think about civil unrest and people who are going to be without, I think, you know, I'm, I speak and I don't, I don't want to be that person either. I don't want to be that guy who talks about what will be in this place of privilege. And I don't know, I don't know how to be another person than, what, than who I am. But, um, you know, I'm sitting in a comfortable hotel room and I'm saying I'd like to make a difference and I'd like to make a change and I'd like you know, to be a part of this revolution, but, um, but it's quite easy to say in this, in this situation. And, I, and, and there's so much going on that is ageist and racist and sexist and everything else and all the other shit that's going on and, and then throw in, you know, Miss Rona and you're just like, we're fucked. <laughs> it's just, we're fucked. What do you feel your role or your responsibility is at this particular moment then? I feel that what I can do is like I said, I can only do, I can take care of myself. And by taking care of myself, I can then be of service to someone else. And whatever way that means, I, is, it varies. I know that if I'm good to myself, I take care of my health, I take care of my mental health, then I can contribute to the benevolence of this world. Right, I have a choice every morning. I can take care of myself and be of use, or I can lie in bed and, and, and contribute to the garbage. You know what I mean? So if each person collectively could do one small thing by taking care of their self in some small way, 
then they could maybe contribute to the good of this world. Maybe they could hear the birds and maybe they could smile at somebody else. Maybe they could be kind to someone else. Maybe they could be generous to somebody else. You know, then, I mean, we'd be in a hugely better place than we are right now. You know that there is, um, there is a lot of that going on right now. There's a, I was reading a big, big and a huge article in the, um, in the Guardian yesterday about mutual aid and about basically grassroots support things, you know, people helping people everywhere around the world. And you get a sense of how change can come. You know, it, it's, it's quite inspiring that ignoring the lack of leadership from those nihilistic, cynical, lying old men that, that we talked about before, people doing things for themselves, helping people you know, helping, helping the people in their street, helping the people in the next house, whatever. If people can, if enough people hang on feeling that they get from that. And there's, you know, this is, this is a huge, this is a huge crisis that confronts everybody. If enough people hang on to that feeling of that positivity, that, that outreach that they managed to commit to while this was going on, you know, that is a revolution of a kind. Yes, it's true, but it has to be collective. You see, the problem is when, it, when you're outnumbered, it, it still works, there's no reason. Listen, whether I'm in the majority or the minority, I'm gonna continue to take care of myself and do nice things for other people. That is what I am going to do, I'm committed to that. Now, whether people see what I'm doing as being their kind of kindness or their form of charity or their form of, you know, that's another story. So, people will judge how I behave no matter what. But, and whether I'm in the minority or the majority, it doesn't matter. I know I'm good with myself right now because I know that I'm a good person and a kind person and a generous person and a creative person. And I will continue to give as long as I'm healthy enough to be able to. And, and that's, that, that's what I'll do. And I do think if it is collective and if it's on such a scale, it's like I think of that, Diet Coke or that Coca-Cola commercial, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You know, it's so corny, but it's so perfect. Like if everybody just raised their voices and if everybody opened their window and if everybody did, like it would just be the sound of that would just be so amazing. But if you've got half the world or more than half the world sitting saying like, oh, let those queers sing, it's not gonna work. But there's only one, the, 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 the way forward, you've done, you've done this throughout your career, is collaboration or competition. And we, need, and we need to collaborate. And this is what's coming out of this, I think, is that people realize there is strength in collaboration. That, that isolation, is, isolation is disenfranchising and collaboration is- No man is an island. Each man's death diminishes me, right? Is something to that effect. Exactly. Tell Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. Let's tell that to your president. Now, you said something that so, um, I, I guess, bothered me when we talked last time. You said documentation of what you do is not important to you. And I, I, I don't think there's... <laughs> no, isn't? Even now? Even now you're not thinking, God, I want to keep... For who? For whom? People who will be inspired in the future, for people who will will understand why you did what you did and, and why it was important. I don't know. I think I think I probably was feeling very negative that day, or maybe I was feeling like what's what is it all for? Sorry? You were nervous about your speech at the wedding. 
Yes, I was. I was. But I, I kind of feel like maybe, again, being present isn't about receiving information, you know, like, and so maybe it isn't important to document things and learn from, like maybe being present and just experiencing things rather than experiencing things, experiencing things with the weight of what information we've received. Maybe that's trouble, like maybe getting older and the more information you receive, the more you learn actually prevents you from maintaining this naivety that, that is like like a child has has less experience and is therefore able to sort of be present and respond naturally to things and with the weight of information and experience they become like burdened and and so maybe you know again this idea of being present you need to like be uninformed <laughs> i don't know i don't know i have no idea i have no That's that's the ignorance is bliss argument though. well yes so, it is the ignorance is bliss argument yes absolutely and i think of children responding to a good story you know and how children learn through stories and how you have to that's you've true told, that's true of course it's true what would be your ideal scenario now oh god i don't i haven't really thought about what would be ideal i mean i'm trying really to live in the moment and I'm not really thinking much about the future or I'm trying not to think about the future because in this moment, I have faith that everything will be some version of okay, you know, and, and, and that's, that's going to keep me from staying in bed. You know what I mean? I'm going to get up as long as I have faith and if I have gratitude and if I have faith, I have to be present because outside of the present, that's where fear gets in. So I, I'm just... I'm, I'm really trying not to go there. <laughs> you are going to live in your house by the sea. I hope so. Perfect. I hope so. The perfect, the perfect sort of finale in a way. I hope so. I mean, that's, that is, that is, I think, again, that's, if I could write my story, that's how I'd like it to end, is in that house. Are you romantic? Yes. But if I could write my story, I mean, including the end, I'd like the end to be the last page of that book, you know, a scene in the movie where I've finished writing and the book closes and I'm sitting there and it's a silhouette of my back, looking out at the water and looking out at Greenwich, Connecticut from this beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright house. And the book closes and the movie ends and, so, and the Philip Glass soundtrack plays. And, <laughs> and and the camera pans up to the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Yeah, I'd want it to be as cliche as humanly possible. <laughs> Douglas Burr. Yes. Thank you very much, Mark. It's wonderful to talk oh, to you. Tim, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you very, very soon. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community. BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.